Welcome to The County, where we examine issues important to Baltimore County, Maryland, explore our vibrant communities, and introduce you to some of the best people and places the county has to offer. I'm your host, Dory Henry. Sparrows Point, situated near the mouth of the Patapsco River in the southeast corner of Baltimore County, was largely rural prior to becoming home to a steel mill in 1889. By the mid-20th century, The Bethlehem Steel Plant located there was the world's largest steel mill, employing tens of thousands and stretching for miles along the Patapsco River. Steel made at Sparrows Point was used in the Golden Gate Bridge and the George Washington Bridge. The shipyard there was one of the most active in the nation, playing a key role in production during both World War I and World War II. But the mill didn't just make steel. It built a community. As is so often the case with large industry, neighborhoods grew up around the steel mill. Workers needed places to live, schools to teach their kids, stores to provide their groceries and other goods. Sparrows Point and the areas nearby flourished with working-class neighborhoods. The work was hard, but the Steelworkers Union ensured that the jobs at the mill were the kind that paid living wages and provided good benefits, the kind of jobs that you could raise a family on. But as is also so often the case with large industry, after its peak in the mid-20th century, the business started to decline over the next few decades. The effects on the surrounding communities were devastating. This picture right here of the two women and these guys, these were taken during a meeting when they were told their benefits were getting cut again. So Mm. you you can see they're just kind of blank. I mean, they're so used to it. Their blank faces just... They they, they built the country. Photographer J.M. Giordano grew up in Dundalk, on the eastern side of the county and not far from Sparrows Point. He saw the human implications of the fall of Big Steel, and he decided to document them. His photographs are currently on display in an exhibit at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. The exhibit, titled Shuttered, Images from the Fall of Bethlehem Steel, aims to shine light on the human toll of an industry's decline. When ISG bought the mills, like they legally didn't have to take over the retirees' yeah, yeah, benefits. Yeah. Put it more succinctly, like if you buy a house, the person you're buying from has been taking care, of their, taking care of their grandparents in the house. Well, if I buy the house, I don't have the obligation to take care of the grandparents. Production at Sparrows Point declined steadily in the latter part of the 20th century. Ownership changed hands several times over the early 2000s, And in 2012, the mill ceased operations for good. Giordano started taking his photographs in 2004. Recently, County Executive Johnny Olszewski joined Giordano at the museum to take a look at the exhibit. And then this wall, you come over to the retirees, two or three really important retirees on this wall. I don't know, you you may have known, it's Bob Crandall, he's still still around. Bob in there? Yeah. Uh, He came to the show. He was pretty upset by that photograph. I thought he didn't like it, but he was upset because I put him in there with no hard hat on. He, he's actually the reason I got a lot of these behind-the-scenes stuff, because he gave me a tour of the, of the whole of the land, the whole uh, facility. Giordano is referring here to a photo of a man standing amid debris inside the darkened mill, mostly in shadows with just a few dusty shafts of light shining through the windows high on the left side wall. But these guys here... Uh, Lee Douglas and Eddie and his son. Eddie was the first black, and you know, Lee was the first black shop steward 
Mm. Uh, these these guys were integral in uh, integrating the mills. No. Yeah, they were they were the two guys that kind of ran mm. the whole project with the union to uh, integrate the mills. In these photos, Lee Douglas stands at attention in front of his modest, well-kept home. He became the first black shop steward in the hot strip mill in 1947. Eddie Barty Sr. is pictured with his son, Eddie Jr., both in blazers, with the sky behind them full of gray clouds. And then I, I took this with my phone, actually. It's my only iPhone photo in here. Mm. But I, I went back with my, my camera, and it was, it was already taken down. Mm. I'm glad I pulled over and like, was able to, like, I parked and I walked across the median and got like, a nice high-red shot of it. This is a picture of a bunch of crosses yeah, representing... Uh, a, right, we're looking at a picture of a bunch of crosses that uh, represent the uh, death by drug and alcohol addiction, which happens in communities where these industries collapse. If you go to Sparrows Point today, you see cranes across the skyline. Over the last few years, Trade Point Atlantic has purchased more than 3,000 acres encompassing the land that once housed the mills and the shipyard. The company is turning the peninsula into a distribution hub with access to a network of railroads, highways, and a deep water port. Tenants at the site include Amazon, Under Armour, Harley-Davidson, FedEx Ground, and more. But as the area sees a resurgence of jobs, it's important to remember the history and legacy of the steel mills. After viewing the exhibit, we sat down in the museum's library for a conversation with J.M. or Joe Giordano and County Executive Olszewski, along with museum director Anita Kassoff and research historian Joseph Abel, who curated the exhibit. If we could start, Joe, by having you talk about the inspiration for this, the photo series, because it was the photo series that started and then it turned into something that was for an exhibit here. Yes, yeah, I mean, the, the photo exhibit, it'll be 15 years and it's an international project that I'm working on, but it started here in Baltimore uh, as the mill started to close with portraits of the retirees. Thanks to Bill Barry, he was a labor science professor at CCBC, like he's retired, but he's still here, so he was a labor science professor. Uh, he still does a lot of work with former union members and retirees getting their stories. Working with him to get the portraits and then going down to the mills uh, as they were gradually closing following President Bush tariffs uh, and then the, the sale of the mill to International Steel Group. And then when our current president uh, announced he was imposing tariffs on steel, I, I just kind of had this, to quote Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. and. Uh, I started to expand the project to go to the Ohio Valley, to Steubenville, to Weirton. Then I watch, and you can watch now as this British steel industry is collapsing, so I'll be going over there, knocking on wood uh, in September to do that. So it, it's, just, it's just an entire project about how one industry that was so integral to, to, to world building, literal world building, uh, has just, it just collapsed, it's made of clay, it just collapsed under the feet of these people that have been working for almost 50 years in one job at a, at a steel mill. And then I approached the museum and I went through and re-edited all of these. Uh, some of them were originally shot in color, some of them I shot with digital, but with the, having to convert to black and white. Like I had my mind already in black and white. So in other words, color had really nothing to do with the picture. Uh, like, like the mill, like the, the big the big mill photo down there is, is a monochrome even in color. It's just has no color in it whatsoever. Um, I, I thought because the color had nothing to do with the context of the photos and I showed them to a few 
uh, friends of mine who I respect, uh, photojournalists who shoot for New York Times, Washington Post, and they unanimously agree black and white. They're like, these, go back and re-edit these. And I, they haven't been shown. I mean, I had a small show at the Creative Alliance, but that was in 05. Like, that's over, you know, f- almost 15 years now. So that's the only time they've been shown in college. They haven't been shown anywhere else. Not even on my website. They, so the, the museum really has exclusive uh, shots that haven't been seen anywhere else. And after, like, really looking through these, I'm like, yeah, there's nothing the color brings to the picture. And the black and white is very immediate. It makes you pay attention to the subjects in the photograph. You grew up in the area. So can yes. you talk sort of a little bit about the personal connection? Yeah, so my, my grandfather was a steel worker at, uh, he was in the mechanics union at Eastern Stainless, which was a mini mill across from East Point Mall, Colgate area, uh, right, right before Essex. Uh, <laughs> they, they made the steel for the St. Louis Arch at Eastern Stainless. So the steel from Best Steel, Joseph, you can chime in, like, would go from Bestiole to Eastern Stainless, and they would treat it? Is that how, how did the stainless mills work? Oh, the, the Sparrows Point Mill uh, supplied uh, millions and millions of tons of steel for um, local local factories and local industries, like right. like stain, uh, Eastern Stainless, Armco, um, General, the General Motors plant that used to be on Browning Highway. And the they fabricators. The, we have yeah. a lot of steel fabricators that are still in Baltimore, yeah. which I'm shooting as part of this what we make now project. Yeah. I mean, it, that still was it was not, uh, I mean, it obviously sold still all of the world, but right. um, it, it built up a very significant uh, local industry around mm-hmm. it. I mean, it just makes sense that, you know, if you've got the, the world's largest steel mill, which it was uh, at one time, um, that you're going to locate other various industrial plants around it that so require the raw steel. What has happened to those? other sort of the businesses that have grown out of being in close proximity to Bethlehem Steel? Well, uh, GM has... Been, well, they're gone. There has been gone for a number of years. Um, Almost as long as, yeah, as Best Steel. Yeah. Um, they, they were mid, mid-2000s. I don't know when Armco... Uh, yeah, are, you're, when, I don't know when Armco, Armco or, or Eastern Stainless left. But e- Eastern um, Stainless, I can tell you, Eastern Stainless was... They were like late mid to late 90s. Because I remember my grandmother going through this whole thing with the benefits and stuff with the union, and like, and now they they, uh, I think that was an Arcelor. Someone took them over for a short period of time, and they still produce stainless steel. But then it was only like five years, and then it was gone. It's been definitely gone since two thousand. That's Eastern Stainless, but we still have uh, like Cavanaugh uh, down in Dundalk that are steel fabricators that do a lot of work with. Uh, unfortunately, now imported steel when they were just getting it from the mills, and they, a fabricator makes pipes and wire mesh and things like taking the materials and making. Well, I, I mean, the the thing about the Beth the Bethlehem Steel Mill at Sparrows Point was, I mean, it, it when I say it was the largest in the world, it, I mean, it literally was absolutely gigantic. I mean, we're talking like thirty three hundred acres of industrial plant out there. Um, Modern steel making, though, has moved in a direction of these much smaller integrated mills where they, they do very specialized stuff. That steel, the plant was built to mass produce steel, um, you know, just on a mass scale. Um, that's not the way the steel industry works anymore. And really and truly, by the, the second half of the 20th century, I mean, they reached their peak in late 1950s, early 1960s, but they were continuing to invest in technology that was set up for that mass production of steel, churning out millions and millions of tons, which 
that's all good and fine if that's the goal, but uh, there's economies of scale uh, that started to kick in and new technologies that made that kind of very labor intensive form of steel making obsolete. And you ask a dozen people what caused Bethlehem steel to decline and eventually disappear, you'll probably get a dozen different answers. But I think from where I'm sitting, and I think a lot of uh, sort of the local historians that have looked into this, I think would agree that the majority of the problem at Bethlehem Steel and Sparrows Point was the fact that Bethlehem just did not keep up with the technology. They were investing in horse and buggies when, you know, V8 automobiles were running the show, right? I mean, they were investing in, in technology that, you know, was, was cutting edge at the start of the 20th century, well into the middle of the 20th century, when that just wasn't, wasn't the way to do it anymore. Well, so. And you had those myriad forces coming together to help push towards closure, and towards the end you saw management sort of pointing the finger at labor and saying that's the reason, that's the reason, right. when in reality there were these other factors uh, inclusive of mm -hmm. the company's own failure to innovate and, and change as yeah, the economy and the world around them literally was changing. Well, and even outside the sort of reasons, I mean, I think that the model of being such a large scale facility, I think speaks to how integrated it really was in the community and how connected uh, it really, the, the tentacles reached and how far the impact was, which is why I think an exhibit like this and in general documenting the history is so important because it really did reach far wide and deep into the community, not just Eastern Baltimore County, but all of the Baltimore region. And so I think that larger point of what, what kind of an enterprise Beth Steele was really speaks to the importance and the imperative of, of documenting the history and sharing it. Yeah. So you grew up in Dundalk. Yeah. So, you, so you, you sort of witnessed on a personal level the decline mm -hmm. of Bethlehem Steel. And I, want, I, want, I wonder sort of, what was that like? I mean, seeing your family or your friends' families go through um, the hardship that... Well, it's, it's, it's weird because I grew up in Berkshire, which is near where my grandmother lived, which is the Eastern Stainless one. Not so much the best deal, and I went to Patapsco High School. They, they, they really were their own community down there in Sparrows Point. Like, we didn't see the effects that far, uh, I guess we're, what, east? Northeast, maybe, of that, of, you know, Sparrows Point, where, you know, Sparrows Point Middle and High School are one school, right? It used to be Sparrows Point Town. So that was the area that really, like, what, you were east, Eastwood, is that where your dad's from? My dad grew up in Eastwood. Yeah, that's I where was, my grandma I was in North Point Eastwood. Village and then Sparrows Point. Yeah, Johnny probably had solid more. Well, you were already d done when they were gone, right? I mean, you were, you didn't really see the effects because you were I was young. just coming into office as the plant was closing. Okay, all right, so, yeah. So he, he's probably better. We, we, we didn't feel the reverberations yeah. up there that they did down near, near Sparrows Point proper. Right. Because where, like, my, my family... My friends' families were at Martin's down in Essex. They worked at the um, waste plant, you know, like nearby places that they didn't really commute, or GM, they didn't really commute down to Sparrows Point. So we didn't, I mean, I was in high school and middle school, I was oblivious to it. I mean, to be honest, you know, my mother works, she's been with the same company. She's still off uh, Solid Point Road. She's been there for 20 some years. So she's been there almost as long as I've been out of high school or since I've been out of high school. So they're still there. Right. But we didn't, I mean, did you? 
Any families that around I, I would, you? I would like, say like, so for me, it's sort of two things, right? Even as the, the plant was towards the end, we were still dealing with some of the, the kish and some of the like the byproduct that would sort of float into the neighboring community. So there were both sort of real tangible effects that you would feel um, living and growing up in near the plant. But I think more than anything, it was sort of the indirect impact and sort of growing up hearing the stories of what an awesome place this, this has, you know, sort of the, the, the pining for what was and the, the wealth and the purchasing power and clean, strong communities. And that was all tied to those strong, you know, well-paying jobs with benefits and vacation and all the sort of health care that people have, you know, become accustomed to, you know, historically. But then to see that the decline of the neighborhoods growing up as sort of those opportunities slipped away as well, right? As people lost their health care, their benefits, their, their jobs, and then slowly seeing the spike in everything from foreclosures to yeah. opioid addiction. So it wasn't really a direct connection so much as you sort of see a lot of the byproduct of massive industry shuttering. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, you both lived in, in relatively close proximity, whereas people I think who live farther away felt it even or thought they were feeling it even less but one of the things we try to do at the at the museum is to and one of the things we're trying to do with this project is to help people who don't necessarily think they have a connection to Bethlehem Steel understand that when a major industry leaves it impacts everybody mm -hmm. and it may not be obvious in your day-to-day -day interactions but if there's a rise of opioid use in the area or if there's a big spike in unemployment and all of the ills that go with that, everybody's going to feel it. Retail so, closures. And exactly. Like so like so what we're, one of the challenges we're facing is trying to make this story relevant for everybody and even people who don't have a personal connection while still making it meaningful for yeah. people who do have something very personal tied yeah. to the closure of the mill. You were coming into office as a delegate right when the plant was closing. Mm -hmm. So how did that affect your work like from a public policy perspective. Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about as we were touring the exhibit. It's, it's about sort of affirming the rights of workers and supporting working families. And so, I mean, it really was a, the motivation for me as to why, you know, my two pillars then in, in many respects now are sort of education first and foremost, and then sort of working family policy. So it was everything from historic education funding and why as executive now we're pushing for expansions of, of pre-k and making community college more accessible uh, making our library system more available and supported but also on, on the workforce side supporting things like minimum wage increases being the lead sponsor of earned sick leave and finding other ways to sort of spur um, economic development and creating those opportunities where we are we are fostering a, a, a job climate because you know I knew that that impact was real, and so sort of resolved to provide those opportunities for other people who were already either in the workforce so that they had uh, a government who had their back, especially as union membership slips and they don't have those guarantees and sort of workforce agreements anymore. But also for me, right, having all of my family, sort of all the historical folks who had in one way or another may have had a connection to the plant, even if not directly working, they're all high school graduates, right? So having seen what education unlocked for me, first generation college grad on to PhD, saying how do we make sure that we're providing those front end opportunities as well as supporting people who are already out there in the workforce. You've been to other places that have experienced similar to like industry declines. 
have you seen similar effects in those places or is it different? I mean, obviously every place has its own sort of, you know, um, intricacies and, and every place is unique, but I'm wondering what parallels you've seen. Well, I mean, we're unique in that we're on the Eastern seaboard. So we've got DC people, you can work from Montgomery County and work in Amazon, right? Like, but when you get more isolated, like in the Ohio Valley, I mean, it, it, the, the opioid use gets a lot worse. Mm. I think I think there's a lot more hopelessness. I think that a lot of that led to the last election, taking out a lot of other factors, but that was one that I think people felt a lot of left behind, maybe by everything. East Town is different, but along the Ohio Valley, I mean, there, there's abandoned towns that are just along the river, the Ohio River. And you, you really, I mean, if, if you want to see, like, you know, really impressive like the, the the might of American industry you really should go to the Ohio River Valley and just see like it's a river but just these just massive like mills and cranes and everything down there it's just really impressive for the first time when you see it it's big iron bridges and outside of Pittsburgh uh, and it, Pittsburgh's a different case like they, they've turned their mills into casinos and you know the city seems to be doing okay so yeah every city is different and bounced by differently but but the isolated ones are the worrisome ones it's the same in the uk you have cities like red car completely left behind by the steel industry and now they're just you know it's one of the worst towns in, in the uk uh, it's one of the ones i'm visiting i'm going to visit when i'm over there so yeah everyone's different and i mean i i just saw but they're, they're still not hopeless out there like when you talk to people i went to a to a, a private club in Mingo Junction, where they film a deer hunter. If you watch Deer Hunter, most people forget that movie's about steel workers. They're all steel workers in, in the Deer Hunter. I had to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it, I think, since I was maybe in high school. And there's, there's certain scenes in that movie that you remember because, like, the Vietnam War scenes, everybody remembers if you've seen it. But the scenes leading up to the Vietnam War is <coughs> filmed on location in the steel mills uh, and the community halls, the, the whole wedding scenes of the community halls of. Mingo Junction in Steubenville. Really, you, it's amazing. Even if you cut it off when they go to Vietnam, if you don't want to watch any violence. But if you're really interested in the industry, watch that first hour of Deer Hunter because it's all filmed in a steel town when all those mills are working, um, which I thought was great. Now they're all, they're all gone. They, they are refiring a couple mills out there. So I, I have a few Instagram followers that are steel workers from out there that saw me posting about it that I direct message back and forth with and keep an eye on things out there. Um, Anita, can you talk about the general mission of the museum? Sure, absolutely. Well, let me just start by saying we were thrilled when Joe came to us with this project because it does fit so nicely with our mission, which is um, both to celebrate industry in the Baltimore region, but also to show what happens when industries leave, what industrial change looks like, and also what the industries of the future will be. And we also really try to put a human face on the story because it's one thing to talk about the machinery and the processes and the economic impacts of industry. And those are all stories that need to be told. But in the end, we really try to make an emotional connection and talk about the human stories, which is why um, Joe's show was such a natural fit for us. We had already worked for Joe, with Joe um, immediately following unrest following the, the death of Freddie Gray. Joe had done this amazing series like out in the community on the ground of photographs uh, during the unrest and we, we were able to exhibit them and to solicit community feedback and ask them what they thought. Because there's also a deindustrialization story there actually. Many of the neighborhoods that were hardest hit were hit because the jobs had, had left there. So we already knew, knew Joe was great to work with. 
And then when he approached us again with this project, um, it was just kind of a natural to work together again. You know, on piggybacking on that, I, I was just, uh, I finished a project last year with Anna Devere Smith, the um, playwright, uh, actor, writer, uh, on Prison Pipeline, and one of the things she talks about in her book, which is forthcoming, uh, photographed by me, well, it is about the loss of the industrial jobs and what that meant to the black communities mm -hmm. in the city and the kids, the descendants of these, you know, workers. If you actually watch The Corner, go all the way back and watch The Corner. That, that's a really good deindustrialization story because one, one of the characters is a steel worker mm -hmm. in, the, in The Corner. Mm -hmm. Most people forget that David Simon one, right? You've got the Pantheon, right? Yeah. Um, wire, homicide, but watch The Corner because that, I think, is his best work. And that, that really shows the city in decline, mm -hmm. like post-industrial. And you mentioned there's a partnership with TradePoint Atlantic. Can you talk about that? Yes, we just launched a multi-year project um, with support from TradePoint Atlantic to tell the Bethlehem Steel story. Um, and what the project includes is a community outreach initiative because we really, we know there are many, many Bethlehem Steel stories and we know that we need to let the community tell those stories. So we're going out into the community, we're hearing from them, and we're asking them to tell us what it meant to work at Bethlehem Steel, what it meant to be part of that community, what it meant when the steel mill closed. We will open an exhibition here in 2021 that tells about the stories we've been finding. Um, and in the meantime, we are also um, collecting Bethlehem Steel materials. So we already had a collection here. We've been working with TradePoint because they were collecting things on, on site when they took over that site. They actually went out to the buildings before they were demolished and, and brought things in, um, archival materials and 3D artifacts from, from the various buildings. So we've been working with them and are bringing a lot of those things to the museum. And then there are a lot of community members who just have things um, from the mill, you know, hats and uniforms. We just got a pair of, of wooden shoes that they would wear on the floor of the plant because it was so hot. Their, the rubber soles on their shoes would literally be melted, so they would strap on these wooden shoes. Just got a pair People of People laugh at the Dutch until, yeah, they, until their exactly. feet burn. It's a storytelling project, it's a collections project, and then ultimately um, we'll be creating this long-term exhibition so that people can come here and, and see the story. The photographers I looked at for this, this project were uh, Bill Brandt from the UK. He operated 1930s to about the 80s and did a lot of industrial uh, photographs. If, if you look at his work, you be like, oh, I see that. And uh, W. Eugene Smith, who was very famous, he did a whole series on Pittsburgh, an entire book on Pittsburgh. Um, and those were those those two, especially with their style of black and white photography, were the, the two that I looked up to for the for the exhibit. Well, thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you. Shuttered will be open at the Baltimore Museum of Industry through April 2020. For more information, visit www.thebmi.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of The County. This episode was produced with help from media services at the Baltimore County Public Library. We hope you'll continue to tune in as we explore all that Baltimore County has to offer.